As Ben said, uh, the scripture reading this morning is from Romans chapter 3, verses 21 to 31. I'll give you a moment to find it. Romans 3, 21 through 31. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one. Who will, just, who will justify the circumcised by faith and the circumcised through faith, the uncircumcised through faith? Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. This is the very word of God. There may not be a concept within Christianity that's more misunderstood than the concept of faith. For many people, when they hear the word faith, all they can think about is this must be some kind of belief in spite of or in place of there being any evidence. But of course, that is not absolutely not what the Bible means when it speaks of faith. Faith in the Bible is belief in line with because of the evidence. The Bible is not interested in you believing in something that you have no evidence for. The Bible is interested in providing evidence, ground, for you to believe, for you to trust. So if you struggle with faith, anybody here struggle with faith? If you struggle with belief, if you struggle and wrestle with Christianity, then your struggle is not first and foremost a struggle within yourself, I just got to try to believe. I got to try to believe. Your struggle, actually, whether you realize it or not, is with God. Your struggle is with trying to come to see that God is believable, that God can be trusted, that God has given evidence for you to believe in him. 
We're working our way through the book of Romans, and we are finishing up today, by God's grace, the third chapter. In some ways, it feels like we're moving along pretty quickly, but uh, there's a lot still to uncover. Yet the passage before us this morning is one of those crucial texts uh, that we really have to grasp in order for us to make our way through the rest of Paul's letter. So I'm glad you're here today. Or I'm glad you're watching on the live stream. Or I'm glad you're going to listen to this sermon later because this one, this passage, is crucial to our understanding of the gospel. The Apostle Paul has said in Romans chapter 1, I am not ashamed of the gospel. When he said that in Romans 1.16, he meant, of course, based on Romans 1.15, I am not ashamed to proclaim the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because, he says, it's the power of God unto salvation. But then in verse 17, he says this. He says, because in it, that is in the gospel, the righteousness of God has been revealed, has been made manifest, has become evidential. Do you see the relationship? From faith for faith. Faith is based upon the manifestation of, of God's rightness, of God's justice, the fact that God has proven himself, that there's evidence for you to now believe in him. And that's what I want to speak to you about this morning from our text today. You see, we find hope for ourselves and for our world in the way that God has most clearly given evidence, proven his rightness, manifested his own righteousness. So how has he done it? (laughs) What is the evidence that God can be believed, that God can be trusted? And this morning, I want to come at this text by showing us, by helping us look at three ways that God has manifested his rightness, his justice, his trustworthiness, so that you and I cannot be ashamed of the gospel. First, it's because of the faithfulness of Christ. Second, it's because of the redemption in Christ. And then last, because of the community of Christ. The faithfulness of Christ, the redemption in Christ, and the community of Christ. Three ways that we can think about God proving himself righteous, proving himself trustworthy, giving us evidence to ground our trust, our belief, our faith in him. So let's get started this morning. How is it that God has demonstrated his own righteousness? The first answer that we can give is this. It's through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. It is in the faithfulness of Jesus that we can see God has kept his promise. And therefore, God can be trusted. If somebody makes a great promise to you and they fulfill that promise, then your faith becomes more grounded, right? And that's what God has done in the faithfulness of Jesus. Now, in order to see this, I've, we've got to set the stage correctly. So let me, let me say it again. The issue that is before us up to this point in Romans, we've seen it in every text, and it's here again. The issue is 
the questioning, the, the probing of God's own righteousness, his own justice. Is the God of the Bible, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is this God someone you can trust? Now, in order to answer that question, we have to know what it is that this God has promised to do. Lots of people doubt God because God isn't coming through for them in a way that God never promised he would come through for them. So you have to understand what is it that God has promised to do. Because if we promise, or if we presume, for instance, that what God has promised to do, believe me, and I will make your life easy and prosperous, free of suffering and pain. If that's what you think God has promised to do, then it is no wonder that you will find faith to be especially difficult when life becomes challenging. But of course, that is not what God has promised. On the other hand, on the other hand, there are scores of Christians today who believe that what God has promised to do is to ensure that when you finally get to the end of your miserable life, when you finally draw your final breath, your immaterial soul will fly away to that home on God's celestial shore. You never sang that song, but you believe it, maybe. And believing that that is the scope, the entirety of God's promise will probably not even raise the kinds of questions that Paul believes the gospel he preaches answers. Romans chapter 2 will be completely insignificant to you if all you think the entirety, the scope of God's promise is heaven after you die then Romans chapter 2, not to say Romans 1 through 3, will really not matter much to you. But if the righteousness of God, if his faithfulness to keep his promise is never called into question, then the good news of the gospel will fall flat on deaf ears. In other words, we again have to deal with this question that God appears to be unrighteous. God appears to have broken all of his promises, or at least is powerless to see them through. So what is it that God has promised? What God has promised is so much better than a life of prosperous ease. Much better than that. The, the promise that God has made is so much better than some consolation prize at the end of a difficult life. The passage before us, as well as the entirety of the next chapter, all of chapter 4, is basically an exposition of Genesis chapter 15 and the covenant that God made with Abraham. So if you come to your Bible and you say, well, what, what is this book all about? What has God promised to do? A good place for you to begin is in Genesis 15. And there we find what it is that the whole Bible tells us God has promised to do. It's like the thesis of the entire scripture. And so we must keep it in mind as we read our Bibles. And we must especially keep it in mind as we read here and on through the next chapter of Romans.
You see, what God has promised to do is to undo the sin of Adam and its cosmic effects, not just pain and poverty, but death itself. Death itself. So then the righteousness of God that is in view here, that's under question, that's under scrutiny in this passage, is the question of, has God, has God kept that promise? Can God keep that promise. And what we are told here, what we are being told in this passage is, oh, yes, yes, absolutely yes. Because you see, we don't just have to hope that God will fulfill his word. We're not just saying, well, it looks like he's broken his promise, but hang on, he still might be able to do it. Let's still keep believing in him. What this passage tells us is that God has already kept the promise. You didn't hear that. This passage is telling us not, well, just keep believing against all odds. Maybe God will still come through. You can still hang on. This passage is saying you can believe because God has completed the promise. He has fulfilled his word. His righteousness, his rightness has been made plain, has become evidential. He has kept his promise. And you're supposed to say, really? How so? Well, look what it says here in verse 21. The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. So what would it mean for God's righteousness to be manifested with the law? And it would simply mean that you would see the evidence of God's rightness, his justice, his truthfulness, his faithfulness, as he punishes those who adhere to his law and rewards, or punishes those who break his law and reward those who adhere to it. If God did that, the whole world will say, he's just. He's just. But here's the problem. Paul's already talked about the problem in the previous chapter and in the previous passage. The problem is that we have a massive problem here. Everybody has broken his law. Everybody. And yet God has made a promise to Abraham in Genesis chapter 15, and that promise now is in jeopardy. If God intends to keep his promise, then he's going to have to either spare a sinner, some sinner, but if he does that, if he spares some sinner, then he has now violated his righteous law. So if God's going to uphold his righteous law, then all sinners are going to perish, and his promise to Abraham has now become nullified. Right? This is the dilemma. This is the great problem that the Bible presents to us. So if you see that dilemma, then you're ready now. You're set up for what Paul is going to show us. If you look to the law of God... You can't see a solution to the problem. God's righteousness is called into question. It doesn't appear God is going to be able to keep his promise. He's going to have to either violate his law or break his great promise. And it's into this dilemma that those first two words of verse 21 bring hope. But now, but now, there is good news for us to consider. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. In other words, God has, in fact, kept his promise, but it did not come by Israel upholding his law. 
And yet, this manifestation of God's righteousness, verse 21 goes on to say, is not entirely separate from the law. It's not some new thing that's in discord with what God was doing in the Old Testament. It's in fact what the law and the prophets have been testifying about, have been pointing to all along. So verse 22 tells us what this hope is. It's the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. When Colby read it, I just wanted to say, amen. Like that is an amazing verse. It's an amazing verse. It is the gospel in a nutshell. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. And you, oh, this is the problem of preaching Romans in 40 weeks. Like that should be 40 weeks in that phrase. That is the entirety of the Bible, about as good as you could summarize it. But I got to keep going. We can see God has in fact kept his promise made to Abraham, and we see it not through the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, if you're using your ESV right now, if you're following along the English Standard Version, Um, The ESV has interpreted the Greek phrase, and they had to. They had to, because the phrase is ambiguous. The word faith, the word faith in Greek can also mean faithfulness. So it can mean faith or faithfulness. And Jesus could be the object of faith or the subject of faith of faith. So in other words, the phrase here could be referring to the righteousness of God has been manifested either through the faithfulness that Jesus Christ has shown or the righteousness of of God has been manifested through the faith that we place in Jesus. You see the difference? The phrase is ambiguous. You've got to make a decision when you translate. So the ESV made a decision. But as is often the case when the Greek is ambiguous, it probably means we shouldn't have to decide between the two if there's no contradiction. It means both. It means both. And I think that's the way to read it. But... You can't really see how our faith in Christ, which is kind of how the ESV translates it here, you can't really see how that works until you see how the, what the faithfulness of Christ has achieved. No reason to believe in Jesus if you don't see what it is Jesus has accomplished. If you don't see, in other words, the faithfulness that Christ has shown. Here we find the faithfulness that God required from Israel in order for his promise for the world to be fulfilled. God had told Abraham, I'm going to make of you a great nation. I'm going to bless you and you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. He reaffirms this in Genesis chapter 15. You've got the great Abrahamic covenant. So God has promised that through Israel, he's going to bring salvation to the world. He's going to undo the effects of Adam's sin and its cosmic consequences. And here we see that God, we see that the faithfulness that God required has been fulfilled. 
The argument put forward in the gospel is that in the faithfulness of Christ, God has been shown to be righteous. He has been faithful to his promise. It's the promise first made to Abraham. In the faithfulness of Jesus, we are to see that God has brought to fruition all that he has promised. He has fulfilled his covenant. He's fulfilled his promise. Again, again, the promise has not just been sustained so that you can say, well, there's still hope. God might still keep his promise. No, no. The promise has been fulfilled. God is righteous and therefore can be trusted because God has kept his promise in the faithfulness of Jesus. Someone has indeed been obedient to the law of God, has upheld the righteous standard of God, and in this person, salvation has come to the world. That's the argument that Paul is putting forward here when he says the righteousness of God through faith of Christ, through Christ's faithfulness. Now, so what we're being told is that we're supposed to look we're supposed, to catch, we're supposed to turn our attention to the faithfulness of Christ rather than what Paul has been talking about the last two chapters, namely the faithlessness of Israel. We're supposed to now have our, our attention turned away from here to here in order to see that God is righteous, that he is just, that he has been true to his word. And at the same time, the faithfulness of Christ highlights God's righteousness in yet another way. Because if the faithfulness of Christ is, in fact, the faithfulness that God required in order for salvation to come, then what we find in Christ is redemption. Redemption for the world because, remember the promise, the promise is in the faithfulness of of God's servant, there will come then light to the nations, hope for the world. Paul calls it redemption that is in Christ. So God's great promise, listen, is not a fiction. It is a promise that affects real human beings like you and me. That's why in verse 22, the faithfulness of Jesus is not simply the manifestation of God's righteousness. It is the the faithfulness of Jesus is also, look what he says, for all who believe. For all who believe. Yes, all. All without exception. Because as the next two verses explain, All human beings have no other hope than the manifestation of God's righteousness through the faithfulness of Jesus. you got no other place to look. Verse 22 concludes, There is no distinction for, verse 23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, it seems, at least to my casual estimation, it seems that most people will concede the first part of verse 23. For all have sinned. Yep, nobody's perfect. It seems most people are ready to concede that point. But see here what it is that sin has done to us. All have sinned and fall short 
of the glory of God. In other words, sinning is not just breaking the rules. Sinning is to become subhuman. It means that we now lack, fall short. The Greek, for, the Greek verb here is to lack something. It means we lack that which was meant to be ours as creatures made in God's image. Namely, a share in the divine glory. We lack the glory of God. What was meant to be ours as creatures made in the image of God is the enjoyment of a vibrant relationship with God. God who is the first and best of all beings. And you, made in his image, are supposed to enjoy a vibrant relationship with God. But because of sin, something's been lost. We lack something. Sin is universal in its appearance. All have sinned. So the glory of God then is universally absent in all human beings. But thanks be to God that the thought continues in verse 24. For some reason, we memorized Romans 3.23 by itself, but you got to like start in verse 22, and you got to keep going through verse 24. Praise be to God that that's the case, right? We don't have to put up with sin and accept it as the new normal. Well, it's universal. We all sin. It's just, this is how it is. No, no, we've got a better message than this. There is redemption found in Christ Jesus. Do you see it in verse 24? I hope you're reading and you're seeing verse 24. You got to keep going. Don't stop with all have sinned, fall short of the glory of God. And, and, he says, are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Now, verses 24 to 26. Oh, 40 weeks? Man, we had, we got to stop with verse 22. We'd have to spend probably 12 weeks on verses 24 to 26. These are chock full with heavy theological terms. Just look at it. Redemption, justification, grace, propitiation, faith, righteousness. You got it? You got those concepts? You understand them? These are terms that can only be fully understood when we consider the story of human beings having lost the glory of God, the story of Israel as the means by which God promises to save the world, but who have also now fallen and need to be saved themselves, and the story of God himself who has been acting all along to save Israel, humanity, and indeed the entire world. Put all these stories together, stories that complement each other, and when they do, you get verses 24 to 26. A very dense passage before us. So I got to do something here with all these terms in like four minutes. So here we go. Redemption in verse 24 informs and is informed by, you'll see it, justification by his grace as a gift. So what is redemption? Redemption has to do with liberation, deliverance from something that enslaves or ensnares. 
Justification, of course, refers to righteousness or rightness or to vindication. Those who are right are proven to be in the right. They're vindicated. Now, the link between these two theological terms tells us that what God gives to us freely, that is by grace, is the liberation from the effects of sin. That would include, first of all, the guilt of being unrighteous before God and thus under the judgment and wrath of God himself. So in Christ, we may find liberation from sin and therefore no longer under judgment. But how is that possible? You should be asking that question because why would you believe it? Why look to Christ for redemption? Why look to Christ for rescue from wrath? Why would you believe it? Why should you hope in Jesus? And here's why. Because, the scripture says, God put him forward as a propitiation by his blood. There's our next theological term. Propitiation. The word refers to the ritual of atonement in the Old Testament in which the effects of sin are dealt with and the forgiveness of the sinner becomes justified or right. So it will help us to consider the second half of verse 25. Atonement for sin was necessary because, the Bible says, God in his divine forbearance had passed over former sins. Now, I love it when God passes over my sins. I don't like it so much when he passes over yours. But this is what God has done. His righteousness has been on the line. He looks to be unjust because it seems that God has let way too many sinners off the hook. So before we can see, in other words, what the cross means for you and for me, do you first of all see what the cross means for God? Do you see it? You won't grasp the gospel if you, only, if you first make it about you. You have to first make it about God and his own righteousness. The cross of Christ means that God himself has been justified. God has been justified. God has been shown to be in the right for passing over former sins. Verse 26 says, you can now see that God is righteous because he has not. He has not ignored sin. He is just because he has poured out his righteous wrath on his own self in the person of Jesus, the Messiah. God has been justified. But of course, this means that at the very same time, the cross means something glorious for sinners. It means that God is right, not only because he has been just in his wrath against sin, but also God is right to justify, to declare not guilty, to say you are in the right, to vindicate those who otherwise would have been the recipients of his righteous wrath. God purposed that Jesus would be the propitiation for sin so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. What an amazing verse. What an astounding gospel. Quite literally, the various stories of the Bible tell, tell us, um, 
I'm sorry, the various stories that the Bible tells all converge in this one place. At the cross of Jesus Christ and his subsequent resurrection. It is right here. I, I said that the gospel, the gospel is not a fiction. It is right here in time and space, somewhere around 30 AD, that a new era dawned. But now, but now the righteousness of God has been made plain, has been evidenced, has been set forth for all to see. God's righteousness, that is the proof that God has kept his promise, that he has been faithful, true to his word, this righteousness is on display right now. Right now. So you have every reason to trust him. And when you trust him, you are made to share in his vindication, in his rightness, in his justice, in his righteousness. So this leads us then to one last way that God has manifested his righteousness. We've seen that God has shown his righteousness in the faithfulness of Christ, that is, salvation's coming through someone, someone who has upheld my law. Israel failed and needs salvation. Where are we supposed to look? You look to Jesus, the one who has been faithful to the end. And therefore, if you look to Christ, if you see that God has been faithful in Jesus, then know what this means for you and me who believe in Jesus. It means you too are now vindicated. You too are now counted as righteous because you share in his own vindication. That's still not enough for you, is it? So I'm so glad we have here these amazing verses at the end of Romans chapter 3, which at first look like they are, what's the connection? What's the connection here? There is the restoration, there's the faithfulness of Christ, there's redemption in Christ, the restoration of the glory of God that's been lost by the devastating effects of sin. But then here's the thing, let's just, let's just square it up. Here's the thing, if all of this is true, <laughs> If we're saying the kingdom of God has now dawned, if we're saying that it's somewhere 30 years into the common era, that God has manifested his righteousness on a cross, on Calvary, then here's a really big question. Why doesn't it appear to be true? Why does sin still reign? The skeptic asks. You're asking. And if you're asking that question and you're saying, yeah, okay, this all sounds all theoretical and good, but if God has actually kept his promise, that promise made to Abraham, Genesis 12, Genesis 15, if that's true, then where is this salvation? Where is this kingdom of God that you're talking about? And if you can't see it, the answer is you're still not looking at the right place. You're still not looking at the right place. 
And now I'm going to get, I'm not going to really raise some eyebrows. Because if you want to see God's righteousness, then, and you can't see it, and you haven't seen it yet in the faithfulness of Christ, the redemption that's in Christ, then, I'm, then Paul seems to offer us one last place to look. I'm about to raise some eyebrows. Look at the community of Christ. Look at the church. Now, there can be no doubt that the story isn't quite over. As Christians, of course, we wait for our blessed hope. The blessed hope is not when you die, life after death. The blessed hope, according to the Bible, is the appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who will bring with him all who have died in Christ, who will resurrect our bodies. That's what we're looking for. You got this? Because I've been, like, preaching this a lot, so... Hoping you get it. The hope we have is a resurrection of the body, the life everlasting. Yes, there is, yes, there's more to come. But a new era has already dawned. Like for 2,000 years, we've been living in this era. It came with the person and work of Jesus Christ. So I'm saying, I'm saying, if you will look at Christ... If you will look at Christ, you will see the righteousness of God proof positive if you look at Christ. Now, back in verse 24, we find the first occurrence in Romans of the distinctive Pauline emphasis on union with Christ. Redemption is found in Christ Jesus. It's only found there. You don't find redemption in the church. You find redemption in Christ. You don't find redemption in that new job that you just got, or the new car you just bought, or that promotion. You find redemption only in one place, in Jesus Christ. The doctrine of justification by grace alone, since it is found only in union with Jesus, means that redemption cannot be just a future expectation of being found not guilty before God when you die so you can go to heaven. It does mean that. Praise God it means that. That's good news when you're on your deathbed. But it also means that we possess this redemption now in our union with Jesus Christ. If it's true, that's what it means. So for one thing then, as verse 27 asks, what becomes of our boasting? If this is true, what becomes of our boasting? And the answer is, it is excluded. When we exercise faith in Christ, all human pride is given a death blow, and that is a new world. Oh, imagine walking into a world tomorrow morning where there is no human pride left. Everything would be changed. Yeah, that's right. I mean, Claude gets it. You guys don't get it, but this brother does. I mean, this would be amazing if all human pride was suffocated out at work or in your home. It would change everything. Yes? Okay, now... Notice what Paul says. The gospel of Jesus has dealt a death blow to human boasting. But look what he says. How did it come about? Did it come about by a law of works? And at this point, you should stop because you would think the answer would be, but yeah. I mean, remember what he said. He said, by works of the law, no one can be justified. So it appears that you would think, 
a, a, a principle of works would suffocate human pride. Go ahead, human pride. Go ahead, try it. Try to live up to God's standard. You can't do it. See, you can't boast in yourself. But that's not what he says. That's not what he says. He says no. He says no. Not by the law of works, but by the law of faith. You see, on the one hand, the law of works would eventually, eventually rule out human pride because we would come to find that we cannot keep the law. But the law of faith eliminates human pride from the start, from the very beginning. The principle or the law of works would eventually rule out human boasting. But the principle of faith rules it out from the beginning. Do you see the difference? So if you indeed hope in Christ, if you trust in him, then in him, that faith in him excludes any possibility from the beginning for human boasting. The only hope for justification, verse 28 says, is by faith apart from works of the law. So when we look into Christ, when you take a gaze at Jesus, what you find is a community of people who trust in him and have not even a breath to boast in themselves. Wow. There's evidence. What else can you see in this community of Christ? When you gaze into Christ, what else do you see? You see a community of people who have not even a breath to boast. But here's what else you see. Paul tells us in verse 29, you find a community of Jews and Gentiles alike. Since, he says in verse 30, God is one. Do you follow that logic? The fact that there is only one God is the grounding for the fact that there can only be one unified people of God. Not two, not three. There's one God, so there's only one people of God. How is this possible given that humanity is so diverse, not to mention so divided? What could possibly bring together those who otherwise have nothing in common? Jews and Gentiles, different socioeconomic places in the world, different ethnicities, different political views, different favorite sports teams. Well, now that would be amazing. What could possibly, possibly bring together into one family people who otherwise have nothing in common? And the answer is faith, faith in Christ. The answer is faith, the answering faith to the faithfulness of the Messiah in Romans 3.22, which is itself the outworking of God's own faithfulness, his truthfulness and justice. In Christ, you find a family of people all descended from Abraham. (laughs) What? Well, that's chapter 4. All descended from Abraham because they share this same faith with him a vast and diverse multitude of people. This is what was always envisioned in the people of God. And it is all right now realized in the communion of saints reconstituted around Jesus. What we're talking about here is the one holy Catholic church that we confess in the creed. It's why we say that. The diversity of the church united in faith, 
worship and holiness is the sole visible symbol of the promised people of God. Now, wait just a minute. Don't hear this as saying, well, just look at a local church and you'll see the evidence that God can be trusted. That is a disaster. That's a recipe for destruction. You just take a look at a church, even this church, you're going to have lots of reasons not to believe. But if you're looking at Christ, if you're looking at a people reconstituted around Jesus, worshiping Jesus, communing with Jesus, there you will find a vast and diverse multitude. The sole visible symbol of the promised people of God. And then lastly, look what he says in verse 31. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Do you remember what Paul said back in Romans 2.13? He said, it's not the hearers of the law who are justified, but the doers of the law. So he circles all the way back now. He ends chapter 3. I haven't forgotten. I haven't forgotten. What about the law then? Are we now saying that doing the law is insignificant? That the law of God doesn't matter? Are we now saying that obedience to God and his ways is irrelevant because it's all by grace through faith? Is that what you're saying, Paul? And Paul says this, have we then overthrown the law by this kind of faith? By this faith in Christ? When we look into Jesus, will we see lawbreakers? Will we see people who care nothing about God and his ways? Paul says, absolutely not. By no means. God forbid. On the contrary, he says, we uphold the law. Now, Paul will have more to explain here on this phrase, which basically is unpacked in four chapters in Romans, Romans 5 through 8. So mercifully, I don't have to expound all that now, and mercifully, this sermon can come to an end. But let me at least say it this way. When you gaze into Christ, what you find is a community. You find people who believe in Jesus, and in this people, you find no breath for boasting. Can't even start. I heard a, uh, a preacher here recently, I saw a clip where the preacher said, imagine, he, he said this, he said, if you start to explain the gospel in the first person, you've gone wrong. And the, the example he gave was he said, just, Im- just imagine the thief on the cross. Imagine him the moment he draws his last breath and he dies And just, he's standing before the angels, he said. And the angels look at him. How did you get here? If you start in the first person, well, I, you've gone all wrong. You you don't understand grace. You don't understand grace. There's not even the beginning point for boasting. You can't even possibly say that. The thief on the cross would never have said, well, but I, I, I. No, no. How did you get here? How did you get here? thief on the cross would have said, the guy on the middle cross told me I could come. The confidence. It's all by grace. It's all by grace. This is what you will find when you look into Christ. No grounds, no breath for boasting. 
a diverse family of people, Jew and Gentile, one holy Catholic church. How could this be? Because they're all reconstituted around Jesus, around Jesus. And what you're going to find is a community of people who uphold the law. Again, four chapters to try to unpack that. But let me at least just say this as we close. You know, the church gets a lot of negative press, as it should. As it should. When churches are unfaithful, when Christians are unfaithful to the ways of God, and it becomes a scandal to the world, this isn't shocking to us who believe in the gospel of grace. You're looking to the wrong place. But what doesn't get told very much is 2,000 years of fruitfulness of believers who've simply trusted in Jesus Christ and have been faithful day after day after day in small and ordinary ways. Uh, last week, a few of us went to a luncheon, just as an example, uh, for the 111 Project, a local nonprofit here. Um, that we've been involved with, one degree or another, as a church, um, through the care portal and uh, focusing on foster care and adoption. And it was amazing as they began to explain, um, Ashley, help me with the num- I, rough numbers. It was something like, uh, I don't remember how many years ago, 12,000 children were in foster care in Oklahoma, right? And that number now is roughly 7,500. That's substantial. And most of that's being done by believers in Christ, by a community in Christ. There's more work to be done. But take this as just one example. Multiply it all around the world from faithful believers in Jesus, empowered by his spirit, doing good deeds by his grace in his strength, Take it all away and the world's a different place. The world's a different place. I don't know how much. God only can determine that. God only can judge that. But God has kept his word in the faithfulness of Christ, in the redemption that is found only in Christ, and in the community of Christ that by his grace we've been made a part of. Let's pray together. So Father in heaven, As we come now as your people to the table, oh, would Jesus be front and center? If anything has been true today that we have sung and that we have heard proclaimed over us, it's true only because of Jesus. He is the evidence that God has kept his word, that God has upheld his justice, that God can be trusted. So may we trust him today. May we believe him today because of Christ. In Christ is found all our hope. In Christ is found the righteousness of God. And in Christ alone are we vindicated as his people. We're not vindicated by our good deeds. No way. We're vindicated through faith in the one who has been faithful for us. We give you thanks and praise together this morning.